0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Please stand. We'll begin in
2: prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this night and the privilege that we have of gathering together as your children. We ask you to come and uh, be with us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that your Spirit would guide us into all truth. For all that is done, Lord, this evening and for the fellowship that we enjoy, we give you thanks and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
1: Amen. We have a wonderful presenter this evening. Father Randy Sly is a Catholic priest with the personal Ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter, serving as chaplain of the St. John Fisher Ordinary Community of Northern Virginia, and as a priest in residence at Our Lady of Hope Catholic Church. He was raised in the Episcopal Church and spent over 30 years in parish and denominational ministry, where he was ordained a priest and later consecrated as a bishop. He last served as the Archbishop of the CEC's Eastern Province. In November 2006, he and his wife were received into full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. And in 2012, he was ordained a Roman Catholic priest. Father Sly is a popular speaker on spiritual formation, biblical studies, pro-life issues, the family, worship, and liturgy. In addition, he earned a bachelor and master's degrees. Father Sly was awarded a Doctor of Divinity degree honoris causa from Holy Trinity Theological College and Seminary. He and his wife have 3 grown children and 8 grandchildren and resides in Potomac Falls, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Father
2: Randy Sly. Deacon, I'm a little embarrassed. I, I guess I needed to read my email a little better. I, I prepared on marriage and divorce. and I, I, You wanted me to speak about C.S. Lewis, is that right? Okay, well, that's what we'll do then. Um, please pray for me tonight as I pray for you. I celebrated three masses, including one that finished at 6.30, so uh, I need all the prayer I can that my voice will make it through tonight. But we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis and in particularly about the book, The Great Divorce. And basically tonight, I want to do two things for you. One of two things, you can take your pick. One is I want to help you better understand the book that you've already read or to help you to be better prepared to read the book, The Great Divorce. Please know this is not going to be a Notes lecture. I'm not going to do a thing all the way through the great divorce. I want to kind of give us a bigger picture than that, and hopefully after we look at the, at the big picture, then we maybe dive into a few passages where we can really get to see the flavor of what C.S. Lewis did in his writing. But it wouldn't be the Institute of Catholic Culture, and it wouldn't be consistent with me if we didn't read Scripture. Yeah, Deacon back there. Yeah, so. <laughs> I want to set the context by just reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what St. Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says, For we know that if our earthly dwelling, a tent, should be destroyed, we have a building from God, a dwelling not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent we groan, longing to be further clothed with our heavenly habitation. If indeed when we have taken it off, we shall not be found naked." For while we are in this tent, we groan and are weighed down, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as the first installment. Now, when we talk about the great divorce, we're talking about entering into eternity, but in a very different and kind of unique way and it's also a book that was written to the culture of its time it was really an indictment and a challenge to the uh, culture of modernism and also looked upon as a way of helping to establish some good thinking about the christian religion as a focus now let's let's just kind of talk a little bit about cs lewis himself most of us know clive staples lewis he was born in uh, 1898, actually, November 29th, 1898, and he was born in Belfast, Ireland, before the partitioning of Northern Ireland. And at the time he was a little boy, he insisted that his name was not Clive, but it was Jack. <laughs> he insisted upon this, and so his family started calling him Jack, and guess what? For his entire life, he was known as Jack Lewis. He was an Oxford professor, an apologist, and an author. And of course, how many of you have read Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, what about Mere Christianity? Okay, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. There's one! Okay, That book brought me into the Catholic faith. Very interesting. Kind of give you a little, because it talks a lot about liturgy in a very interesting way. how about, uh, what are some other books that you may have read? tape Letters? Yeah. yeah. Anybody see the screw tape presentation downtown when it came to town? Awesome, awesome time. Anyway, he was a part of an Oxford literary group called the Inklings. Very interesting group of people. Just think about sitting around a pub with J.R.R. R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, Christopher Tolkien, who is J.R.R.'s son, Lord David Cecil, Neville Coghill, and many, many others. And they met at a place in Oxford called the Eagle and Child, which was known more familiarly to the people of Oxford as the bird and baby. And uh, in fact, we were over there. I took a group over to uh, England, and one of the things we did is we went to Oxford. And of course, you can't go to Oxford without going to the bird and baby, So here we come and here we're walking in and we're looking around and the bartender is is standing there at the bar with his, and he just goes, it was over there. (laughs) And so we got to sit down where C.S. Lewis actually sat. 1957, he married an American poet named Joy Davidman and he died November 22nd, 1963. What date does that remind you of? Kennedy assassination. That's why nobody ever remembers his passing, is it happened the very same day. Now, The Great Divorce as a book began as a series of articles in an Anglican publication called The Guardian. And it was published in 14 installments beginning in November of 1944 until April of 1945. And the first title of the book was Who Goes Home? Interesting title. And the style of the book, people are still trying to figure out how to describe it. Some people say, well, it's an allegory. Well, technically it's not an allegory because in an allegory, you have to have each player, each place, and each event stand for something else. And that particular model kind of falls apart if you begin to analyze the great divorce. If you get too close to that, to try to make it an allegory, it really falls apart. Some people call it a symbolic religious fantasy. You could kind of go there. But I like the way that Lewis kind of looks at it, and this is what he says in the introduction. He says, I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral. But the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative, Supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation of what actually may await us. I love that. This is an imaginative supposal. So please don't read The Great Divorce thinking that he is making a theological outline of how we're making it through the eschatological future that we will have with our Lord. But it's a way for him to convey and to communicate certain principles and certain ideas that he has. Uh, My seminary professor, one of my seminary professors, beat it into me with three words, and he said this, a text without a context is a pretext. Text without a context is a pretext. And he would say, context is everything. In other words, what was going on around the book, or what was going on around, in my case, the scripture back then, So let's look at what was going around the book that makes this book so unique and so important. Because it wasn't written in a vacuum, and it wasn't written out of a lark. He didn't sit down one day and go, you know, I'm going to write an imaginative supposal. And I'm just going to make up these characters. There was something more involved. In particular, and this will kind of alleviate some of the concerns you might have about my outline because you're wondering where I was going with this, but the book was written as a response to an early poem by William Blake, which was entitled, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Now you understand why he calls it the Great Divorce. It was a response to the marriage of heaven and hell. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I want to set that one off to the side and go back and give us a little historic context for what we're talking about. Western culture of course, began to change about the time that Columbus discovered the New World. But really, some of the major changes took place in what they call the Industrial Revolution from 1760 to about 1840. And this is when we began to see the move from an agrarian society to an industrial society. We began to see the fragmentation of the family, where the fathers left the farms and moved to the cities in order to find work in factories. And it was really the beginning of a major shift in culture none has ever seen before. This was really quite an amazing thing. And to kind of take that on to the next step, in the 1800s, as the Industrial Revolution was really taking shape, 19th century Romanticism really came into being. And this is where we're going to kind of begin tonight, because William Blake wrote during the period of Romanticism, and then Lewis responded during the period of modernity. Now, what was Romanticism? It sounds like the Romantic period. Well, it's actually a little bit more diabolical than that, because in 19th century Romanticism, what you had is the emphasis on individualism and subjectivism, there was an emphasis on individual liberties, and guess what? There was the beginnings of the use of drugs, in particular opium, by the Romantics. And it was during the period of Victorian England, for example, that the proto-modernists within the Romantic period began to attack Victorian principles. It was a time of cultural turmoil, radical economic upheaval, mechanization, scientific discoveries, human condition in crowded cities were just causing all kinds of, of changes in the dynamic because the families were floundering back on the farm without dad because dad was in the city. And so there was this continual move of trying to figure out how to prioritize things in life. There was also pressure to put aside the norms of society, and the rejection of past knowledge was one of the big things. And this is where we begin to see ourselves move into modernity, is when we see the rejection of what took place in the past. Now, let me give you an example of uh, uh, modernism, and where this kind of led from the Romantic period. And by the way, when, when we hear about the Romantic period, a couple of names that will kind of sneak out. One would be Soren Kierkegaard, who wrote, you know, he's kind of part toward the end of the Romantic period, and Nietzsche, Freud, with his new school of psychology. But in modernism, this is what we've got. It's a cultural movement that rebelled against Victorian morals. And so you had the Victorian culture over here, and you had the modernists over here. I was reading Dr. Catherine Lavender from the City University of New York, who did kind of a great little overview of what modernity looks like, and one of the things that she points out is that Victorian culture can be kind of characterized this way. Victorians placed humans over and outside of nature, and they believed in a single way of looking at the world, absolute clear-cut dichotomies between right and wrong, good and bad, hero and villain and they saw the world as being governed by God's will and that each person and thing in the world had a specific use. And they also saw the world as neatly divided between civilized and savage peoples. Now, modernity comes into existence at this time, particularly in England. You remember, this is where Lewis is writing. He's in Oxford. Now, the modernists come in and they blame the Victorians for everything. Slavery, racism, imperialism, World War I. All of that was the result of the Victorian era. They emphasized the human over nationalism. They began to be those that really emphasized the fact that humanism and the the centrality of the human individual was preeminent over the cause of a nation. And argued for more of a cultural relativism, that morals and all of that were kind of on a sliding scale or sometimes up and down. Kind of sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? There were multiple ways of looking at the world according to the modernists, and they reversed a lot of the values that were associated with culture. They really saw Victorian morals, and they saw especially the Christian religion as an enemy of freedom and self-realization. So you can begin to see how this is going to unwind. Here are some notable names that are affiliated with the modernists, like Samuel Beckett, Joseph Conrad, T.S. Eliot, William Faulkner, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Liam Forster, Ernest Hemingway, James Joyce, Franz Kafka, George Kaiser, D.H. Lawrence. I mean, these are all of the people we've been reading, you know, over the last many, many decades. And so, we've all been saturated with a lot of modernism. Now, the period in which Lewis is writing is kind of a jolted modernism that is fueled by not just the Industrial Revolution, but the technological revolution. Electricity, the telephone, radio, the automobile, all of these things created new ways for this modernist message to really be propagated in a much more efficient way. And so this is the world that C.S. Lewis is facing. Here he is a classicist, a Christian, who really believes in the the Orthodox Christian faith and, and wants more than anything else to to really propagate it. Not because he grew up that way, but because he came back to it. And many of you know the story that he abandoned his faith only to come back and have it truly enlivened in a powerful and dynamic way. Well, one of the things that he saw as an influence, especially in England, was the workings of some of the uh, proto-modernists, some of the Romantic writers that really were a part of this wave that kind of swept over England. And the guy that At the time that he wrote it, he was kind of unheralded, but later on, there was great traction to his work, and this was the man, William Blake, who was born in 1757 and died in 1827. So you can see, he was an early Romantic. He was an artist, he was an engraver, a poet, and a political radical. And he claimed, even as a small boy of about age four, that he would be able to see God, that he had visions. And so uh, William Wordsworth actually called him. He said, William Blake is a madman. (laughs) So uh, he was unherited, like I said, during his lifetime. He was a baptized Anglican, embraced scripture, but hostile to any organized religion. And really did embrace some of the Early modernist free love notions that were circulating in the 19th century. He was a popular illustrator. In fact, at the end of his life, he was commissioned to illustrate Dante's comedy. He was very good. But again, what he did was published The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. He wrote it at age 33. This is around the turn of the century. Between 1790 and 1793 is when he wrote it and began to propagate just about the turn of the 1800s. And he wrote it entirely on plates engraved with beautiful illustrations. But what's contained within this is absolutely diabolical. Let me just kind of go through a few of the things. In his work, devils are good, angels are bad, reason is heresy, and impulse is truth. The angels, according to Blake, are kind of like religious Pharisees. And the devils represent free thinking. Truth only exists in contradiction and disagreement. Good and evil are antiquated falsities. And truth can only be found when good and evil are seen as two sides of the same coin. So this is what we're dealing with. I want to just read... A couple of things. The first is from a section of this poem, I think it's about 14 plates. This is the fourth plate called The Voice of the Devil. This is what's in that plate. Please know this is not truth, this is what he was portraying. All Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors that man has two existing principles, a body and a soul that energy called evil alone from the body, and that reason called good alone from the soul. Now, one of the things that Blake said is that good is really passivity to reason. So, in other words, if you're good, you're just passive to reason. But if you're evil, then you have an energy. You have an energy for creativity. And so he saw evil as really something that needed to be propagated. It's very anti-Christ, isn't it? That God will torment man in eternity for following his energies. In other words, the reason that God will torment man in eternity is because he followed his creative thinking, his energy. The following contraries to these are true. Man has no body distinct from his soul. For that called a body is a portion of the soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in this age. Energy is only life, and is from the body, and reason is bound, or outward circumference of energy. So energy is eternal delight. Now we're going to see this played out in a couple of ways in Lewis's great divorce that I hope we have time to cover. Energy is eternal delight. Yikes. Evil, then, is eternal delight. One of the other ones <laughs> gets worse. The Proverbs of hell. The road of excess leads... I didn't put this in your notes because I really don't want you to have this. <laughs> I've got better Proverbs for you to, uh, to study. The road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Prudence is a rich old ugly maid courted by incapacity. Eternity is in love with the productions of time. No bird soars too high if he soars with his own wings. If a fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion. Listen to this one. The pride of the peacock is the glory of God. The lust of the goat is the bounty of God, the wrath of the lion is the wisdom of God, and the nakedness of a woman is the work of God. Everything possible to be believed is an image of truth. Boy, that leads it wide open. Prayers plow not, praises reap not. Sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. Can you just, I mean, this guy is, is, is putting this out for, I'm going to get this off of there, yuck. This guy's trying to propagate this kind of stuff. And you know what? The people in this free thinking English society were kind of buying it. A lot of these, you know, they're kind of like the beatniks of England. You know, they were just, oh, wow, this is cool. This is really, oh, yeah. Yeah, I need to nurse my desires. Well, it's, it's, it's just a mess. So basically, whether good or evil, all will ultimately end up at the same place. So it doesn't matter. Live your life the way you want to live it. It won't matter at all. And that's one of the things that Lewis felt was a call to write, a call to set everything straight. In fact, Lewis, in the preface to the Great Divorce, said this, Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. So, The Great Divorce was written to help illustrate the human condition from a Christian point of view, from a Biblical point of view, and to answer by reason of good stories and this creative imaginative supposal, Some of the meanderings of people like the William Blakes of the world. Now, let's take a look at the great divorce itself in summary form and see what we've got here. And I think you've got this on your outline. And you can kind of fill in some notes as you go along. First of all, the great divorce begins in hell. Here we find the first person, a narrator, most likely Lewis himself. And uh, he's finding himself in a shabby, gray, rain-soaked English city bathed in perpetual twilight. And this is populated by men and women of unpleasant personality. The town's boundaries keep expanding because the people can't stand each other, so they keep moving farther away. (laughs) It sounds like, you know, the suburbs. Anyway... (laughs) There's no community interest, there's no interest in building commerce or anything. Now, what's interesting is that later in the book, you'll find a hero by the name of George MacDonald, who was, by the way, a real Scottish pastor and author that was Lewis's hero. So he's actually taken somebody from his real life and made him a bright spirit in the book. And George MacDonald kind of lets the cat out of the bag at one point in the book about hell, and he says this, it depends on the way you're using the words. I can't really be a Scotsman, but if they leave that gray town behind, it will not have been hell. To any that leaves it, it is purgatory. And perhaps ye better not call this country heaven, not deep heaven, ye understand. You call it the valley of the shadow of life. And yet to those who stay here, it will have been heaven from first. And ye can call these sad streets in the town yonder the valley of the shadow of death. But to those who remain there, they have been in hell even from the beginning. Very interesting. So that's the beginning point. Now what happens? There's this bus stop in hell. And there's a group of people that are getting on the bus. It's a beautiful, gilded bus. And it begins to fly and it takes its passengers to heaven. So we have this bus... It's on the way to heaven. And on the trip, it's kind of interesting because as it lifts off and they begin to see this twilight city, you would think that the city continues to get smaller. As But what happens is that the higher they go, the bigger the city is. Why is that? Because people have moved so far away that the expanse of the city is almost unlimited. But the trip keeps moving higher and higher. The bus keeps taking them up. And it goes up this cliff. And the people on this bus that Lewis encounters, later he's going to call them ghosts. And we'll find out why in a a second. But each one of them then becomes one of the stories, one of the encounters that he has in heaven. And this country that they get to, when they arrive in heaven, this country is the most beautiful country they've ever seen. Every feature of landscape is absolutely glorious. The colors are so vivid. Everything is so strong. The noise of the waters is so loud that it's almost deafening in awe. And one of the things that's happening is that there's a change going on, that as they arrive in heaven, these guys on the bus, all of a sudden, they become ghost-like. In other words, in comparison to the reality in which they are entering, they now do not have that much substance. When they step off the bus onto the grass, the grass blades are painful for their feet. It is so painful for them to keep walking. It's just really interesting how the contrast. Here in hell, they have substance. In fact, they have more substance than hell does because the houses that they can create down there can't keep out the rain. They're just for show. They don't have any safety or security involved. Now they get on the bus and they go to heaven. In contrast to heaven, they're like ghosts, almost completely transparent. They basically are told that the longer they stay there and the more they walk there, the more solid they will become and the more acclimated to their surroundings they will be. Now, they encounter spirits along the way. And these spirits basically are the people from their past who are there in heaven to greet the bus. The role of these spirits, their assignment, is to meet the one on the bus that they know very well and help them to want to stay. They're trying to convince these people on the bus that this is a good place to be. And the sad thing is, as you read the book, it's almost fruitless because most of them are much happier going back to hell than staying in heaven. They want to stay in hell because it's easier to be there than to accept forgiveness, to let go of resentments, to be less egocentric, to just do away with their narcissistic tendencies or... For their intellectualism and their pride, among other things, that they've held to, they would rather hold on to those things and stay in hell than to surrender them and go to heaven. And again, you can see how Lewis is addressing this whole culture that is seeing that evil and good just are the same thing. No, he is showing the human condition as it really is. Now, in the book, there are two metaphors that they're using or that he uses to get his point across. And the first one, and this is a good one because the air conditioning just came out, refrigerium. (laughs) This is our refrigerator, refrigerium. It basically was a concept that uh, was a speculation from a fourth-century poet by the name of Prudentius Aurelius Clemens. Refrigerium was the idea that he put forth that God will give the damned a holiday in heaven. Just a brief visit before they return. A repose from the torments and given days off to visit other places in that night. Nice? You didn't know there was holidays in hell, did you? <laughs> this was the perspective that Lewis wanted to use in the book, that there were these refugees from hell that were given A visit to heaven. Interestingly enough, the idea of refrigerium actually was a centuries-old theological concept, not anything having to do with what the poet Clemens wanted to do. But Tertullian used it to talk about the resting of the passions of those souls who were in purgatory awaiting their arrival in heaven. And so what the early church would do, and it was actually, it was started in northern Africa, it spread uh, to Italy and other places, and was later condemned and put down. But they had what were called refrigerium meals that were held in the tombs to commemorate the dead and intercede that they would find rest during their purgatorial battles, that they would have a resting period. And then also another place where you will see the term refrigerium is actually in the Roman canon. Not again in the same way as Clemens, okay? But this will be very familiar to most of you. Remember also, Lord, your servants, blank and blank, who have gone before us with a sign of faith and rest in the sleep of peace. Grant them, O Lord, we pray, and all who sleep in Christ, a place of refreshment, light, and peace. In Latin, place of refreshment is refrigeria. So the term is something that we use, but not in the way that Lewis is talking about here. What he's doing is, in this imaginative supposal, just saying, what would happen if this group was actually given an opportunity to visit? What would happen? Let's just take a look. And so he put this together. Now, there's a second metaphor that he uses called comparative realities. This is what I was talking about when I... I I shared that the solidity of objects in heaven were so solid that the ghosts had trouble. They couldn't lift. One of the ghosts wanted to take apples back with him. He couldn't lift the apple. You can't stand on the grass. It's so painful. You couldn't go into the water because it would kill you. I mean, it just, everything was so real. And hell was so not real. Well, he got this from basically a story called The Man Who Lived Backwards, by Charles F. Hall, and it was published in a book called Tales of Wonder in 1938. And here, this is a time travel piece where uh, Hall supposed that the sandwiches were so strong they could not be bitten and raindrops could pierce like bullets because when you're visiting the past, the past is firm and cannot be stopped, cannot be changed. It is firmly there. Where you from the present, you're still in flux. But if you visit the past, it's more solid than you are. That's where he got the concept. So he took these two metaphors and used them to really put this book together. And of course we have the, you know, a great character list. We've got, of course, the narrator, who is basically Lewis himself, the tousle-headed poet who was a professed communist, the big man, a violent ghost that didn't like the fact that murderers could be forgiven, One of my favorites, the Episcopal ghost. (laughs) Not Episcopal in the denomination, but Episcopal in office. Yes, we're going to talk about him if we have time. The Episcopal ghost. The hard-bitten ghost. The hard-bitten ghost. The paranoid ghost. The teacher, that is George MacDonald. Then you have the famous artist who can't accept being in a place where he's not famous, where everybody's the same. Uh, The domineering woman who was upset because she could no longer dominate her husband in heaven. (laughs) So she was mad about that. So she went back to where she could dominate people. She was upset. Also, there was a bereaved mother who was obsessed with her son that had died, and she would rather have him come back to hell so that she could be his mommy, rather to let him go to heaven. The lustful ghost with the lizard, an oily ghost, an oily man they called him, And then there's the dwarf and the tragedian. One person with two personalities. Very interesting group of characters to work with. Well, we've got just enough time. I want to go ahead and have us visit one of these characters. I want to visit the Episcopal Ghost which is B in your outline. I I gave you several of these to look at, plus some quotes out of the book that you can read. But this will give you an idea of how clever he is in terms of his understanding. So the Episcopal ghost, it goes like this. Close beside me, I saw another of the bright people in conversation with a ghost. It was that fat ghost with the cultured voice who had addressed me on the bus, and it seemed to be wearing gaiters. Now, those are spats, for those who don't know what gaiters are. It has nothing to do with Florida football. (laughs) And it was saying to the spirit who was naked and almost blindingly white, Ah, dick, I shall never forget some of our talks. I expect you've changed your views a bit since then. You became rather narrow-minded toward the end of your life, but no doubt you've broadened out again. How do you mean? Well, it's obvious by now, isn't it, that you weren't quite right? Why, my dear boy, you were coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. (laughs) But wasn't I right? Oh, in a spiritual sense, to be sure. I still believe in them in that way, but I am still, my dear boy, looking for the kingdom. But nothing superstitious or mythological. Excuse me. Where do you imagine you've been? Ah, I see. You mean that gray town with all its continual hope of mourning. We must all live by hope, must we not? With its field for indefinite progress is in a sense heaven if we only have eyes to see it. That's a beautiful idea. I didn't mean that at all. Is it possible you don't know where you've been? Now that you mention it, I don't think we ever do give it a name. What do you call it? We call it hell. There's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I am not very orthodox in your sense of that word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. Discuss hell reverently? I mean what I said. You've been in hell. Though if you don't go back, you may call it purgatory. Go on, my dear boy, go on. That is so like you. No doubt you tell me why on your view I was sent there. I'm not angry. But don't you know? (laughs) You went there because you're an apostate. Are you serious, Dick? Perfectly. This is worse than I expected. Do you really think people are penalized for their honest opinions? Even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions were mistaken. We are not playing now. I have been talking of the past, your past and mine, only in order that you may turn from it forever. One wrench and the tooth will be out. You can begin as if nothing had ever gone wrong, white as snow. It's all true, you know. He is in me for you with that power. And I have come on a long journey to meet you. You have seen hell. You are in sight of heaven. Will you even now repent and believe? I'm not sure that I've got the exact point you're trying to make, said the ghost. I'm not trying to make any point, said the spirit. I'm trying to tell you to repent and believe. But my dear boy, I believe already. We may not be perfectly agreed, but you have completely misjudged me if you do not realize that my religion is very real and a very precious thing to me. Very well, said the other, as if changing his plan. Will you believe in me? In what sense? Will you come with me to the mountains? It will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. But will you come? Well, that is a plan. I am perfectly ready to consider it. Of course, I should require some assurances. I should want to guarantee that you are taking me to a place where I shall find a wider sphere of usefulness, and a scope of talents that God has given me, and an atmosphere of free inquiry, inquiry rather. In short, all that one means by civilization. Remember what the modernists said about civilization, the civilized versus the savage. All that one means by civilization, and the spiritual life no said the other I can promise you none of these things no sphere of of usefulness you are not needed there at all no scope for your talents only forgiveness for having perverted them no atmosphere of inquiry for I will bring you to the land not of questions but of answers and you shall see the face of God ah but we must all interpret these beautiful words in our own way For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Prove all things. To travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? To travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. It's like um, years ago, one of the advertising slogans for one of the computer companies was, The journey is the reward. Listen, said the white spirit, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again even now. Ah, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. You have gone far wrong. Thirst was made for water. Inquiry for truth What you now call the free play of inquiry has neither more nor less to do with the ends for which intelligence was given you, this is tough, than masturbation has to do with marriage. Very, very crude and to the point. If we cannot be reverent, then at least there's no need to be obscene. The suggestion that I should return at my age to mere factual inquisitiveness of boyhood strikes me as preposterous. In any case, that question-and-answer conception of thought only applies to matters of fact. Religious and speculative questions are surely on a different level. Happiness, my dear Dick, said the ghost placidly, happiness, as you will come to see when you are older, lies in the path of duty, which reminds me, bless my soul, I'd nearly forgotten. Of course I can't come with you. I have to get back next Friday to read a paper. We have a little theological society down there. Ah, yes, there is a plenty of intellectual life, not a very high quality, perhaps. One notices a certain lack of grip, a certain confusion of mind. But that is where I can be of some use to them. There are even some regrettable jealousies. I don't know why, but tempers seem less controlled than they used to be. Still, one mustn't expect too much of human nature. I feel I can do a great work among them but you never asked me about what my paper was all about." (laughs) This is so good. (laughs) I am taking the text about growing up to the measure of the stature of Christ and working out the idea which I feel sure you'll be interested in. I'm going to point out how people always forget that Jesus, here the ghost bowed, was a comparatively young man when he died. He would have outgrown some of his earlier views, you know, if he had lived, as he might have done with a little more tact and patience. I'm going to ask my audience to consider what his mature views would have been. A profound, interesting question. What a different Christianity we might have if only the founder had reached his full stature. I shall end up by pointing out how this deepens the significance of the crucifixion. One feels for the first time what a disaster it was. What a tragic waste. So much promise cut short. Oh, must you be going? Well, so must I. Goodbye, my dear boy, it has been a great pleasure. Most stimulating and provocative. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. The ghost nodded his head and beamed on the spirit with a bright clerical smile or with the best approach to it, which with such unsubstantial lips, could manage, and then turned away, humming softly to himself, City of God, how broad and far. Oh, my word. They're all this good. And they all speak to the human condition. This man would not let go of his intellect and just accept faith that was there before him. And each of these stories in this imaginative supposal is a means for us to examine some of the limitations, some of the restrictions, some of the resistance we might have to literally offering ourselves to God. Just to give you just a little hint. The ghost with a lizard. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this is an oily man. And what you find out later is that this oily man with the lizard, the lizard is really lust. And he's having a dialogue with the angel. And I'll just read just a little bit of it. It's uh, kind of partway into uh, the story. He says, the ghost is talking to the angel about the lizard. He said, I told this little chap that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Well, then I will kill him, said the angel. Ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I meant for the moment I was only thinking about silencing it because of a peer. Well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. And it goes on and on. Well, he kills the lizard. And after he kills the lizard... I'll read toward the end. He says, Next moment the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed on the turf. Ow! That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment I could not make out anything distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then a brighter still and stronger the legs and the arms, the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked but not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed. Far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled, and as it grew it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder, the tail still flickering became the tail of hair that flickered between the huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dwindled. And this man rode his horse to heaven. Isn't that cool? That God takes what is in you that is wrong. And in allowing him to kill it in you, he can bring forth virtue. He can bring forth something of grace and make you even stronger than ever before. Part of it is just letting go of what God wants to kill. So Lewis writes a stimulating book. If you have read it, read it again now. If you haven't read it, I bet you're excited to start. This is such a powerful, powerful book. This is what Lewis said, and this really goes to the idea of the man with a lizard. And this is from his introduction. He said, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Lewis has given us, in this book, a way of aspiring to holiness, aspiring to do what is right, to abandon those things which are not of him, not of God. And to surrender ourselves completely that he might take and in this new creature which he has created in Christ Jesus through our baptism. That we can ever grow more holy, more beautiful, more lovely, more bright and shining and end up ultimately in our heavenly reward. Great book. Thank Thank you. you very much, Father. Good, uh, question and answer. Yeah, we'll t- take a short
1: break and Thank you very much, Father, for a wonderful presentation and again, I know that reading is out of style in our modern society, but at the Institute of Catholic culture we don 't believe in modern society, so get out the books and start reading again we 're going to take about a three or four minute break since c.
0: s. Lewis had such clear understanding of so many things and he, here in this book, talks about abandoning things that are blocks to union with God. I'm wondering what the block was that was keeping him from coming into the Catholic Church.
2: That is a question that has been asked many many times, one that I don't believe in my studies that he had ever really answered. There's speculation. Probably the greatest speculation is that But one of the reasons he did not come in is that if he did, he would have lost his influence in England. Because he, being of the Church of England, he had a a broad spectrum of support and openness from Anglicans and other Protestants all the way into the Catholic Church. But if he had become Catholic, some felt that he might have lost that influence of really helping people to see mere Christianity.
1: A question coming in online from Ray. Do you think that Lewis used elements from Dante's Divine Comedy in putting the great divorce together? I've read, for example, that Lewis used George MacDonald in a role like Virgil in Dante. Are there any other elements?
2: I really have not done a comparative of the two, but I do know that there are people who said he was influenced by Dante. He was fascinated with the idea of being able to tell a story based on the eternal. You know, Dante really set the marker and I think Lewis went ahead and again uh, did something very similar. I have no clue and I've not read anybody that really has addressed the fact that he has like pulled McDonald uh, the same as Virgil and that kind of a thing but I do know that he was heavily influenced by that kind of genre. Father you were uh, mentioning earlier as an aside I guess but if I can go there, the Letters to Malcolm, one of Lewis's books that you saw and was instrumental in bringing you over. What was that exactly for us, cradle to graves, that don't have the uh, good focus that uh, you did see and uh, came on over? Well, I had this longing and desire for classical Christianity at a time where I was pastor, of a large parish that was not moving in that direction. We were the um, church of what's happening now, you know, and anything moving forward. And so I felt that I needed to do one of two things. And by the way, at the time that I was, it was the largest church in the city, but I would spend my prayer time out by the lake listening to John Michael Talbot tapes and crying that I wasn't a part of the church. (laughs) That's really weird. But anyway, I thought, you know, I've got to do this in. Now, here is stupidity. I know who can help me get rid of my penchant for classic and liturgy and all of that, and that is C.S. Lewis, because he just sees through everything. When you read mere Christianity from a Protestant lens, it reads a little bit differently. So anyway, I get to the first chapter, and he starts out and he goes, Malcolm, before we talk about prayer, I really need to tell you why I love the liturgy. And I went, oh, God, bad start. And he said, Malcolm, I love the liturgy because in the liturgy, I am no longer surprised by what is happening next in the service. And I can fully concentrate on God and God alone. And I went, ow, because I kept surprising my people. You know, that was a part of trying to keep everything going. The pinnacle was when he said, remember, my dear Malcolm, our Lord said to Peter, feed my sheep not experiment on my rats. (laughs) (laughs) I was done. I mean, I was like leading them like rats through a maze, you know. We've got to do it a little bit differently this week. And they were being surprised constantly. And you know what? They were being entertained. They were being amused. Everything was going on. The only person that wasn't amused was God because he was kind of left in the background. So that book kind of set me on a course that led ultimately into the fullness of the faith through the Catholic Church because I realized that even within the Anglican tradition, there's so much tinkering going on, changing the goalposts in the middle of the game, so to speak, And some of the experimental liturgies that were coming out were just uh, very disconcerting. Uh, There was one that came out. It was rejected, obviously. But this liturgy in the midst of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, one of the prayers suggested was, and to Jesus who bore us in her womb. So anyway, I'm going to stop. Pick a lot.
1: Another question coming in online from Kristen in Cape Vincent, New York asks, did George MacDonald actually say any of the things that Lewis has him
2: saying in his fictional dialogue? He said them but not specifically the way that they were written. In fact, one of the things that Lewis talks about is that in every single book he's written there's an influence of George MacDonald. He was just a great hero of Lewis's and uh, at the same time There's no actual extant text that he derived the dialogue. It was all made up, it was contrived, but it was basically representative of how MacDonald would probably answer those questions or dialogue at that point. He knew him so well.
0: I was interested in hearing your comments on the comparative influence of the marriage of heaven and hell And the great divorce, at the time, how they were received
2: in England. That's why first he called it, Who Goes Home? But then he realized that if he really wanted to make the point, he needed to really get a little bit more in your face with especially what William Blake was saying. And so, Blake was suggesting that there is a marriage of heaven and hell. And what Lewis was saying, well, if there is a marriage, I'm going to give it the great divorce. I'm going to sever the two because they cannot meet. And that's where the comparative realities really come into play where you see hell down here and it's so non-substantial and heaven is so real. There's no way that the two can connect. One of the things I failed to mention is that in another part of the book, I think it was George MacDonald that even mentions it, that in terms of comparison, that hell is no bigger than the size of an atom in heaven. So this vast expanse of the gray town, this huge expanse of people moving is no bigger than an atom in heaven. And in fact, he said, when you came on your bus ride and you kept thinking you were flying upward and upward, you were really coming in through a crack in the ground. This little tiny crack, and as you came through this crack in the ground, and you sort up here, you began to enlarge so that you could fill the space allotted to you. So it's kind of an interesting way of looking at it, but he wanted to sever that marriage, call it a divorce.
0: You mentioned all of his influences with the Industrial Revolution and Romanticism, but he finished his work two
2: months before D-Day. What about World War II? What were the influences on him where that was concerned? Well, I think one of the things that really was an influence there is that the key question at the time that Lewis wrote The Great Divorce was how can a benevolent God allow human suffering as a type that comes from the horror of the World War? That was a major question back then, and he felt that this would be one way that you could answer it, and the answer was basically that man is a victim of his own failings. He's a victim of his own way of doing things. And so the question, what he was trying to do is saying, you're asking the wrong question. I think he was trying to put forth the argument that don't ask about how can a benevolent God allow this to happen, but how can you get so goofed up in your thinking that you allow these things to actually be present. So in a sense, he was writing to that serious question that a lot of people had about who God was in the midst of the war but he wanted to point out that so much of what was taking place wasn't that God did something, but rather that we keep ignoring the very values and principles and everything that he had established from the very beginning. And in doing so, this is what we've got. Like there's the big man who is upset that a murderer actually can have forgiveness and go to heaven. He was just couldn't see that as being good. How could a benevolent God love this murderer enough to forgive him? So as those kinds of things, as you read some of these characters' stories, then all of a sudden you can see how he's trying to weave that thing in, Anne-Marie. Is that helpful? Thank you. Right. One of the things, as Deacon uh, mentioned at the earlier, I'm a priest with a personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter, which took me about a year to rehearse so I could get it out quickly. Uh, LAUGHTER so much easier to say Diocese of Arlington, but it's a wonderful gift from the Holy Father to former Anglicans coming into full communion in the Catholic Church. Many of you know we've been doing the Anglican Use Mass at Our Lady of Hope since last September at 5 p.m. on Sunday afternoons, but starting this September, we are going to be doing a Sunday morning Anglican Use of the Roman Rite at the Historic Church at St. Mary of Sorrows. And when we do that, we'll have a full Anglican News Mass on Sunday mornings at about 11.15, I think. So anyway, please pray for us. And if you know of Anglicans that are on the journey toward historic Christianity, or as the Holy Father has just pointed out, if you know Catholics who have not yet been confirmed they're also welcome to explore what we're doing in the Ordinariate. But uh, if you want more information, you can talk to me, or we've got our secretary, Heidi Seward, over there, and you can give her your email address, and she'll put you on our distribution list. Thank you so much, Deacon. Oh, yeah. Please stand. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you now and unto ages of ages. Amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 540- 540 Six, three, five, seven, one, Five, five, and may the glory of Christ's Church be ever more manifest upon the earth, St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.